All right. Well, good morning, everybody. So uh, we are in Ephesians uh, chapter 1 still, and uh, in these last few weeks, we've been going through uh, this section of Scripture beginning in verse 3 that goes down through verse 14, which is, um, which is uh, a prayer of Paul, um, and we see the theme of that prayer in verse 3 as we've looked at and will continue to look at, where he is praising God and the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed in Christ, that's that key phrase we keep looking at, in Christ, with every spiritual blessing. So the theme of this prayer is where Paul is going through and, and just listing um, both for the edification of the people that he's writing to and also as his prayer to God, all of the, the things for which he is thankful, the, the many spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. And we saw that, that you can break down this passage by looking at what those blessings are. And last week, we looked at the blessing of uh, the fact that he chose us, that we are, we are a chosen people in um, a little bit different way than Israel was his chosen people. Uh, but now, in effect, there's a new Israel, the, the church, and, and we are chosen by God, and that is certainly a spiritual blessing as we talked about. And then also mentioned that you can break the passage down or to, for understanding purposes by looking at uh, how Paul identifies uh, some of these blessings uh, with each of uh, the persons in the Trinity. Uh, God the Father, uh, we talked about last week and the importance uh, in him choosing us. And then next week we'll look at uh, God the Holy Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit in us, um, both to um, give us the, the confidence in our salvation and then to continue to work out uh, His work in us. And then today we'll look at uh, God the Son uh, and what we have specifically uh, to be thankful for in, in His work. And all of this is wrapped up in the, the big blanket of uh, in Christ. We, we have all of these things because we are in Christ. So, um, so we'll just uh, jump on in. And uh, it's, it's with just a great humility that, that um, I come through to, to talk about this whole passage because um, I, I'm not sure if I had a month to prepare for each section, if I could, if I could do it justice. So I was, I always pray as daddy, uh, did and, and does that uh, the Holy Spirit will kind of uh, fill in uh, the many, many uh, blanks that are there. So uh, we'll start with uh, verse 7. Uh, in him, now that picks up uh, this phrase where it says, with which he is blessed us in the beloved. And in the uh, English Standard Version that I use, um, the beloved is capitalized. That's referring to, to Jesus Christ. And so when it says in him, he's referring to, to Jesus. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. So one of the key concepts, one of the key blessings that we'll be talking about today is the redemption uh, that we have uh, in Jesus. Now this word redemption, uh, as you are well aware, has to do with the concept of, um, it was used primarily 
for a person who was going to go to the slave market, which was extremely common back in the day. Slavery didn't start in the 1800s in Africa and America. It's been going on as long as there's been evil in the world, which is a long time. Um, so there was a big slave market. You could go and, and purchase a slave, and then if you set that slave free, then you had redeemed that slave and set the slave free. Um, that concept of redemption has to do with that. Um, we see the, the big picture of redemption all in the story of Exodus. And again, we have uh, the Israelites were, were slaves there of Pharaoh, and, and God uh, rescued them, uh, redeemed them, so to speak, uh, and brought them out. And so here we have the fact that we have been redeemed uh, by God through the blood of Jesus. And there are several uh, passages that talk about this. One of the most famous is in Mark 10, 45. It says, For the Son of Man also came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So you get this concept of redeeming where there's some sort of a trade that happens. And Jesus says, you know, been the, the ransom for many. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 6.19, there's a verse you will also find familiar where Paul says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. Why? For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. We were purchased with a price, and that price was God's blood. Peter says in uh, 1 Peter 1.18, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. There was an exchange that was made, so to speak, with redemption. Now, if you think about this super logically, which, as we've talked about in recent weeks, we, we try to do in our westernized world, this concept of redeeming and ransom, it does break down a little bit if you carry it too far. So, suffice to say that um, there was, as the Bible says, Jesus paid our ransom, so to speak. But if you start to think about it, when you pay a ransom, who do you pay it to? Well, you pay it to the person who has you captive. Well, in, we are, in essence, captive to sin, and you might say Satan, but this is where the analogy breaks down. The ransom of Jesus' blood was not paid to Satan. Right? That's not what happened. So you have to just be clear about that because some people through the centuries have made some missteps if they tried to, to say who was this ransom paid to. Um, this debt that was owed, so to speak, was in effect owed to God because we know that uh, there was, when we sin, we it's a store up for ourselves wrath, right? We have God's wrath that is directed toward us for that sin. And we sin against him, uh, against, uh, against God. And that is where the breakdown is between us and God because of sin. So, and again, God doesn't pay ransom to himself, so to speak, but yet it was the blood of Jesus that satisfied that wrath. Um, this 
theological terms called penal substitution. Uh, penal having to do with the legalities uh, as a penal code. And this wrath that was directed toward us was instead placed on Jesus as our substitute. So on the cross, when, when the weight of sin was on him, that was our sin, that was God's wrath directed toward Jesus. And because it was all directed toward him, um, then it's not directed toward us anymore. All right? Um, penal substitution. This is the whole concept of the atonement. Um, and uh, when, when it says that we have redemption through his blood, it means all of those things. It means uh, we were enslaved to sin, but bec- and in order to be set free from that, um, a price had to be paid, and that's because of Jesus. So we, uh, we are no longer slaves to sin, as Paul says in Romans, uh, we now become slaves to righteousness. Uh, there's a song that says, uh, you got to serve somebody. You're going to serve somebody. And so uh, we're no longer serving Satan. We're serving our new master, um, the, the best uh, master. And uh, so in essence, we are slaves uh, to, to Christ. Um, he bought us. He, he, he owns us. He, sh- he should own us. And uh, we get... Um, we get in trouble when we're not submissive um, to this most benevolent and gracious master. So a lot in this first phrase, in him we have the redemption through his blood. And then the corollary to that, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Uh, forgiveness, um, one of the roots there means carried away. And you guys remember the story um, in uh, Leviticus 16, the story of the scapegoat. Do you remember that story? where on the Day of Atonement, the priest would bring um, uh, two animals, uh, goats, I think, and uh, one would be sacrificed and the blood would be placed on the altar, recognizing that, that you know, without, sacri- without blood there's no forgiveness of sins. Um, but then the priest would, would lay hands on the other goat and it would be led away to the wilderness. That's the scapegoat, signifying that those sins... Um, not only was a penalty paid, but now the sins are carried away um, from, from memory. They're, they're carried away so that when we have forgiveness of sins, uh, God is no longer keeping a tally of, of what happened. All of that was dealt with at the cross. So we not only have redemption through his blood, where we're in good standing with God now, we also have forgiveness of our trespasses and that helps with our own guilt, right? It means that we can start to see ourselves as saints, no longer as sinners. The latter part of verse 7 most properly goes with the beginning of 8, where it says, According to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Now, some commentators have, um, have taken it to be that God has given us wisdom and insight. Well, that's true. He does give us wisdom and insight, but there are other verses that really speak to uh, God's 
grace toward us in, in giving us wisdom and insight. This particular verse, I think, best understood means that God has given us grace based on his own wisdom and insight. Okay? So it's going to lead into this final part where, where what it is that is part of this riches and grace. But we could, we could take it here that uh, I think Paul is saying he's given us generally as Christians his grace and, and that was out of his wisdom and, and his insight. But I think more specifically we could take it to understand that God applies the grace to us with wisdom and insight individually so that uh, and this is uh, part of the way I understand it um, and I, I might have to get back to you on scriptural support for this but um, I think that the grace that God gives us there's general graces that he gives us but I think there are specific graces that he gives us that are not the same person to person uh, have you ever seen somebody maybe going through some real trouble and you just look at them and whatever the problem is and you just shake your head and say, how are they holding up? I, there's no way I could, I could stand through what they're going through. Well, why are they holding up? God is giving them the grace to go through what they're going through. He hasn't given you their grace. So, yeah, you couldn't imagine yourself going through it because he's not giving you that grace because that's not what you're going through. Um, if you define grace as the, the desire and power to do God's will, which is one of the definitions of grace, it starts to make sense that, that it is through God's wisdom and insight that he applies his grace toward us. It's not indiscriminate. Not that God would ever do anything indiscriminate, but it's not just a blanket thing. I think um, even though we're thinking in big picture terms here, we have a personal God. And what boggles the mind the most is, is not only that he is benevolent toward the collective group of his children, but he is individually working in our lives. Uh, I think it's Matthew where it says, uh, you know, the part where it says, you know, we're supposed to... Uh, pray and and ask for things um, and why why is that it says because he's a good he's a good father he's a good daddy and he's going to give the gifts and I think those are the ways that he applies grace to us so I think when it says according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight we can take that to mean that God is faithful and he is going to apply grace to us as we need it in his wisdom and insight. Um, and we need that's when we talk about having faith in God, this is one of the places where we can have faith and we can pray, God, you said you're going to give me the grace based on your wisdom and insight, and that would be awesome right now. Now, I've noticed not only does he not give us the grace that he gives other people, sometimes he doesn't give us grace too far ahead of time. Um, sometimes it's just in time. Uh, so that's, again, uh, an opportunity to grow our faith. Verse 9. 
He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So one of the other blessings, not only um, redemption, not only uh, the forgiveness of sin, not only the application of grace to our lives, but now one of the other riches that we have is that God has chosen to reveal himself to us um, a mystery. And we'll find out a little bit later uh, one of the aspects of the mystery um, in verse, I'm sorry, in chapter 3, Paul talks about one of the mysteries is that Gentiles get to partake in this, right? This was really good news for the non-Jewish population because before it was a very narrow application of God's blessings. But now um, one of the mysteries is that, um, that Gentiles are going to be able to partake in, in this as well. But in this passage, the big mystery is that God has a big plan. All of this, everything that Paul's talked about, this whole Christian thing, this whole New Testament, um, this new covenant, this whole new way of dealing with man is just part of a big plan. It's part of a big plan. And he says, this is a plan... For the fullness of time, all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So here's Paul saying, everything that's going on, this is just, this wasn't by accident. This wasn't some uh, plan B that God had to, you know, when Adam and Eve messed up in the garden. All of this was planned before then. And again, that's another mystery. Uh, why do the plan A if you really were going with the plan B? I but, but can't quite go there in my head on that. But all of this, it says, was planned. We saw in previous lessons before the foundation of the world because this was the best way to show God's glory. All of this was a plan to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. One commentator says, ever since sin came into the world, things have been falling apart. Can we not agree with that? You might say ever since seven this morning, things have been falling, you know, depending on the day. Goes on to say, sin is tearing everything apart, but in Christ, God will gather everything together in the culmination of the ages. We are a part of this great eternal program. I didn't start off for this to be what you might say a Christmas lesson, but this is a great opportunity to flip over to Isaiah. You can go to Isaiah chapter 9, and then we're going to look briefly at Isaiah 61. In Isaiah... In Isaiah um, Nine, verse 2, it says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. Would you agree that we are still in a time of darkness and that we 
are in a land of deep darkness. But it says in verse 3, you have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. Verse 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end, and on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of the hosts will do this. Why was this a message of hope to the people that he was writing to? Because it was bad then. It was bad then. They had to look forward to this day when for unto us a child is born. In Luke chapter 4, as Jesus is beginning his ministry, at the earliest part of his ministry, in his hometown of Nazareth, verse 16 of chapter 4, it says, And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. Now, um, it just so happened that it was day to read. It was his day to read the scriptures. It just so happened that the scroll was turned to the prophet Isaiah, and it just so happened that he read the following words: Verse eighteen: The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It says, and he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. So if you turn over to Isaiah 61, you'll see where Jesus was reading from. And in verse 2, he says, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor... And in Luke, that's where he stops. But Isaiah, the, the full message says, and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. This day of vengeance, when justice will happen, when, as it says back in our text of Ephesians, where all things in the fullness of time that day of vengeance has not happened yet. That's why Jesus stopped reading where he stopped, because that was what he was to accomplish while he was here on earth. If we can go to Revelation and find out how the story is going to end, there will be a day of vengeance. But here in Ephesians is where we get to see this is a big plan. According to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. Um, there is a, a, a fantasy author that I like to read. Kind of uh, almost like a C.S. Lewis, J.R. Tolkien, um, uh, not to their stature, um, 
but better writing than the Harry Potter stuff. I like that sort of writing. And um, he's an interesting guy. He's a really good writer. I follow his blog. And one of the things he does each December is he holds a fundraiser for an organization called World Builders. Um, they, you know, give goats and water and so forth to the needy. And um, I think this, I'm going to read a part of his blog, and I will delete the expletives. He says, I don't want to, this is where he's writing, telling everybody about this year's fundraiser. He says, I don't want to get all heavy here in the middle of my charity post, but I'll be honest with y'all. Now, he's from Wisconsin. I don't know why he's saying y'all. <laughs> These last couple of weeks have been hard for me. Sometimes it just feels like everything the world is spiraling into. Politicians are awful. Corporations are worse. Our justice system seems to be irrevocably messed up. Cash register receipts are giving us cancer, and the oceans are poisoned with our plastics. There's just so much of it all the time, I can't, and I can't fix it. All of this is so wrong, and it's so big, and I can't do anything about it. He said, there's a word, Weltschmerz, I guess that's German. I've heard it defined as the despair we feel when the world that is is not the world we wish it would be. I feel this way all the time. I'm so endlessly angry and disappointed in the world. If people really understood how constantly, incessantly furious I am, nobody would ever dare come within arm's reach of me. That's why I run World Builders, because the world isn't what I want it to be, and I can't fix it all. But if I don't do something, I'll either start drinking or simply rage until there's nothing left of me but ashes. In some ways, you kind of wish that more Christians felt this way, right? You hear the passion that he recognizes things are not the way they are supposed to be, and he feels compelled to do something. Now, such a huge part of me, you know, wishes he's so is he is so close to the gospel right now, because the first thing you have to realize is that this world is not the way it's supposed to be. My life is not the way it's supposed to be. And at every moment in history, people who have been paying attention have been able to look around and say, things are awful. That is why people have so much hope in Jesus. Because as Paul was telling these folks, it's not there yet. But I've got a plan. And it's all going to work out. I love a happy ending. I'm a little bit sappy that way. Nobody likes a happy ending better than God. Not only that, he can make the endings happy. And he has every intention to do that. And the people that were waiting for the Messiah, they knew that that was when it was going to all start. Um, again, I guess we could go back to Luke, uh, this time chapter 2, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Who is waiting to hear what was going to happen? Verse 25 of Luke. 
Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. What was he waiting for? He was waiting for things to be right. He knew what Isaiah said, and he was waiting for God to come through on that promise. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the, the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit in the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you prepared in the presence of all the peoples. Look at this. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory to your people Israel. He knew in the Holy Spirit that this child was going to be the salvation not just of Israel, but for the Gentiles as well. He knew things were not the way they were supposed to be, but he saw Jesus as the start of that. For us, the other part of this mystery in Ephesians 1 is that we get to participate in that. Now, you know what's interesting to me? When Jesus came and he says, you know, I'm going to bring sight to the blind and so forth, he did all that knowing that he was going to leave here with a bookmark that says, I'm coming back to this. He did all that, you know, he, he helped the sick, he healed, the, you know, we, we went through Mark, we saw those things he did. But he did that knowing that he wasn't totally finished in that work. He would finish the main reason he came, of course, but that division between the first two parts of Isaiah 61-2, there was, there's a gap there of work that's left to be done. So who picks it up from there? We do, right? So here we are. We're not Jesus, of course, but we have a part to play in this as well. So he did his thing for three years. And he's left it to the church to carry it forward for the last 2,000 until he comes back to put the period at the end of that sentence. We get to be part of this big plan that's being talked about. And so when, during Christmas, we hear about Jesus and how things started with him, and what we need to realize is that was just a start, and it's up to us to carry it forward from there that we have work to do as well. And, and even though we know that we won't finish, Jesus knew that he wasn't going to be finished either. You know, there's work to be done, and we need to continue to advance the cause. And just like Jesus brought the first taste of the kingdom of God to earth, we get to do that as well. I mean, that was the first part of the Lord's Prayer, right? Thy kingdom come, Right? And part of our job is to bring that kingdom down to earth as well. We get to be a part of this. Uh, in Ephesians chapter 2, we'll see that just as God chose us to be part of his family, 
He has also chosen works for us to do. It's kind of cool, right? Verse 10, we know the first part of this work, first part of this verse well. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. We know that part, right? I love the rest of this. Which God prepared beforehand. So there's work for us to do. There's work for us to do. Um, And we get to be a part of that because it's part of his big plan. So. As we look and we see the things that are not right. We can have hope that it's all going to be right one day in the fullness of time. And then we can have, I think, our sense of fulfillment and our sense of purpose, knowing that our job is to participate in the work that Christ started, that we have a part of that plan that in the fullness of time includes and the things that we encounter and the people we encounter every single day to keep things moving toward that fullness of time. And as we pray, I think the Holy Spirit will give us the power to do that as we'll see next week. All right, I guess I'll quit there. Comments? Yeah, it's kind of sobering, isn't it? All right, well, let's just pray. Father, we thank you for who you are, and we thank you that you are a good Father who does give us good gifts and gave us the best gift of our Savior, and we thank you that we can be in Christ and receive those blessings. We thank you for the blood that saves us and for the forgiveness that takes care of our guilt and for the purpose that we have to share um, with you, as one of our pastors recently said, this ministry of reconciliation, that you still have work for us to do to help bring things right in the fullness of time. We thank you for Jesus, whose birth we celebrate this time of year as another part of the promise that you gave so many years ago. And we thank you for your Holy Spirit and pray that we will be empowered by him to move forward in these coming days and all these things in Jesus name amen